Okay, we're going to open God's Word now. Uh, We're starting a new series in 1 Peter, uh, a sermon series. We're going to be reading from Micah alongside 1 Peter. So tonight's reading, first reading comes from uh, Micah chapter 1. You can find that on page 853. The word of the Lord that came to Micah the Morishite, what he saw regarding Samaria and Jerusalem in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, all you peoples. Pay attention, earth, and everyone in it. The Lord God will be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is leaving his place and coming down to trample the heights of the earth. The mountains will melt beneath him, and the valleys will split apart like wax near a fire like water cascading down a mountainside. All this will happen because of Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the countryside, a planting area for a vineyard. I will roll her stones into the valley and expose her foundations. All her carved images will be smashed to pieces. All her wages will be burned in the fire, and I will destroy all her idols. Since she collected the wages of a prostitute, they will will be used again for a prostitute. Because of this, I will lament and wail. I will walk barefoot and naked. I will howl like the jackals and mourn like ostriches for her wound is incurable and has reached even Judah. It has approached the gate of my people as far as Jerusalem. Don't announce it in Gath. Don't weep at all. Roll in the dust in Bethleafra. Depart in shameful nakedness, you residents of Shafir. The residents of Zanan will not come out. Beth Ezel is lamenting. Its support is taken from you. Though the residents of Maroth anxiously await for something good, disaster has come from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the horses to the chariot, you residents of Lachish. This was the beginning of sin for daughter Zion, because Israel's acts of rebellion can be traced to you. Therefore, send farewell gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Achzib are a deception to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror against you who live in Marisha. The nobility of Israel will come to Adullam. Shave yourselves bald and cut off your hair in sorrow for your precious children. Make yourselves as bald as an eagle, for they have been taken from you into exile. Continuing our reading, reading from 1 Peter. I'm a little bit excited about reading this because I just talked to Paul Hewitt outside and he's just been to one of the places that we're talking about. So I'm just going to imagine that I'm in the room reading this letter in a little place in Turkey. From Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the temporary residents dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, 
chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you've had to struggle in various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes through refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You love him, though you have not seen him, and though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would have come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to their messianic sufferings and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels desire to look into these things. This be the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Anoop. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks for reading the Bible so well. Uh, We're starting a new series. uh, One, Peter, I love this book. And I love this book because it's a book about hope. H-O-P-E. Hope. And we all need hope, don't we? Uh, Martin Luther King said this, We must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. Think about that. You must accept finite disappointment, but please don't lose infinite hope. Hope fuels us. Hope gets us out of bed in the morning. Hope motivates us. Hope is essential to living. And from an early age, you're you're, you're taught to hope. Do you remember thinking, I I hope I get the right grades at school, and I hope I get into university, and I hope I get this job, and I hope I go traveling, I hope to get married, and I hope to have kids, and I hope to have grandkids, and I hope to be healthy, and I hope to die peacefully, and we hope, and we hope, and we hope. But it's a world's view of hope, isn't it? Because when we hope for all those things, they are not certain, are they? Maybe you didn't get the right grades. Maybe you never went to university. Maybe you never got married and never have kids and never went traveling. Because the world's view of hope is something that you long for, but you're not certain of. The world's view of hope is something that you desire, but there's no guarantees. And, and so when you read hope in the Bible, you can kind of have that, that world's mindset. A nice idea, a maybe, a perhaps, but no certainty. And I reckon that's why when Christians talk about the hope that we have, most of the world looks at it and thinks that sort of sympathetic, oh, good for you, as long as you believe in something, it makes you happy. 
But when you really read the Bible and understand the word hope, the Bible's hope is certain and it is it endures and it lasts and it guarantees. And when you understand that, it gives you a meaning and a purpose for life, doesn't it? Uh, Peter's actually called the apostle of hope. Because Peter talks about hope more than anybody else in the Bible. And hope is vital for living and hope is especially important when life is hard. Wouldn't you agree with that? When life is tough, you need hope, don't you? Let me tell you about the Christians that, Paul, that Peter's writing to. They knew what it was like to have a, what it was like to have a tough life. They're being persecuted, they're being mocked, they're being slandered, they're being oppressed, they're being scoffed at. They live in modern-day Turkey, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And we don't know why they're suffering, but they are suffering. They're living at the time of Nero. Have you ever heard of him, the Emperor Nero? He was not a nice man. He slaughtered the Christians. Maybe that's why they were fearful. But I reckon that the, the persecution and the suffering that they're going through is much more subtle. Maybe these Christians stood up for biblical truth in a world that took God off the radar, and for that they were persecuted. Maybe these Christians were defending a, a biblical view of marriage between one man and one woman, and for that they were mocked. Maybe... They called for the care of the poor and the needy and the marginalized and the oppressed when the world just laughed at all that stuff. Maybe they were teaching their kids about morality. <laughs> it was so countercultural. Or maybe they were out there in the public square preaching about Jesus. We, we don't know. We don't know why they were mocked, but we do know this. They were mocked and slandered and scoffed and marginalized and persecuted. Why? Because they were different. And you know what, friends? If you're here tonight and you know and love Jesus, you're supposed to be different as well. We're not supposed to be like the rest of the world, are we? We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're different from the world because we've got a different purpose and a different meaning to life, and it's called serving our Savior. I've been at Synod all this week. And amongst all the policies and all the boring stuff, we actually talked about some really important things. We, we talked about what the Anglican Church would do about marriage licenses for clergy if and when the state legislates same-sex marriage. That's important, isn't it? We talked about preserving and protecting scripture in schools where most of the other states are trying to get rid of it to ensure that the next generation of kids in school, at least they hear about Jesus. And we talked about equity, how you know, the, the, the rich parishes on the lower North Shore could actually give to some of the poorer parishes because in the poorer parishes, they're often trying to minister to people with much, much, much greater needs. It's exciting stuff. And we talked about standing up for Jesus and the persecution that we might face if we were different. 
Let me ask you, do you see yourself as different? Different from the world because you know Jesus. Different from the people who don't yet know Jesus. I've called this sermon Living Differently because of a living hope. When you know and love Jesus, you're called to be different. How do you do that? Number one, it's your identity, a new identity. Just Just know who you are in Christ. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 again, and there's two words I want to really expand. Uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's seen the risen Lord Jesus, to the temporary residents dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for the sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And the two words of this, the first one is chosen. See that word at the end of verse 1? Uh, Peter reminds the Christians that they are chosen by God. That they belong to God. That God has grabbed hold of them. God chose them. They didn't choose God. Even before time began, even before they were born, even before they had a chance to do good or bad, God chose them. God elected them. That's supposed to be a comfort The amazing thing is that Peter is writing predominantly to Gentiles, not the Jewish people. See, the Jews were the chosen people, weren't they? But the Gentiles, they were scum, they were dogs, they were excluded from the covenant, they were without hope in this world. And Peter looks at the Christians, the Gentiles, and says, you're chosen by God, you belong to God, and God loves you. I love how Trinitarian verse 2 is, They're chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father. God knew them and God took the initiative. They're set apart by the Spirit, the the Spirit's work of transforming and sanctifying and renewing. And the work of Jesus Christ and his blood that was shed. The sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't know whether you know your Bibles that well, but in, in Exodus chapter 24... There's a beautiful chapter where God's people are standing on Mount Sinai. So the people of God are gathered on the mountain and and Moses is there and God is there. And Moses offers a sacrifice. He gets an animal and he he slaughters the animal. And what he does is he, he sprinkles half the blood of the animal on the altar. And that's a sign that their sins are atoned for, their sins are forgiven. So what does Moses do with the other half of the blood? Who does he sprinkle it on? Anyone know? He sprinkles it on the people who were gathered. And if you've been there that day, you would be covered and sprinkled with the blood of an animal. And it sounds gross, but it's beautiful. Because God is saying to you, you're sprinkled with the blood of forgiveness. And you're, you're cleansed with the blood of forgiveness. And you're dedicated to me. And that's what it means to be chosen and sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. God has cleansed you. God has forgiven you. And God has chosen you. 
You might be one of those people who thinks that feels that you're unloved, and you might be one of those people who you know on, on the on the at school where they pick teams you've never chosen. Can I stand here tonight and say you're chosen by God and you're loved by God, and that helps you to to, to be different, doesn't it? Uh, the second word in verse one is that word temporary. To the temporary residents, the word there is literally to the to the refugees or to the exiles. And what Peter's saying to these Christians is, just, just remember that, that this is not home. Please remember that earth is not your home. You're just a temporary resident here. You're heading to your permanent home. That's called heaven. I lived for it was four or five years here in Australia on a temporary residence visa. And it's like the government was saying to me, you don't belong here, Paul. You're not permanent yet. You, I, I can kick you out at any moment. I don't know whether you ever moved countries. It's this bizarre experience because for the first few I know, days and weeks and months, everything is so bizarre. I remember thinking, why do all the cars park in the same direction facing one way down the street? Because back in the UK, you can park your car either way. That's bizarre. And let me say, the, the Australian banking system, that is bizarre. And the way that you do your post, that is bizarre. And all these little things, as a, an Englishman living in Australia, I was thinking, that is weird. Why do they do that? But you know, 15 years later, I park my car facing one way, and I do my banking your way. It's kind of like I've just assimilated. This is, this is just normal. And my fear is this, is that the way of the world and the way of this earth becomes normal to us. And we just live as though we're like the rest of the world and we're permanent residents here on earth. And we've forgotten that heaven's home. And we've forgotten that we're just passing through. And we get far too comfortable. I find it so easy just to fit in with the culture. I don't know about you. It's easy to adopt the values of the culture and the lifestyles of the culture, and even the morality of the culture. And I often do it just to avoid being different. And actually, I should be proud of being different because I'm chosen by God and this is not home. So you live differently when... You understand you're chosen and this is not home. And you live differently when you understood your inheritance to come. Let me read verse 3. He says, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, you're saying, God, wow, you are wonderful. God, I'm so amazed by you. I'm so grateful to you, God. What was he praising God for in verse 3? According to God's great mercy, he's given us new birth into this living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's not uncertain hope. It is certain living hope, an everlasting hope. And we know that because Jesus was raised. And into an inheritance that is imperishable and uncorrupted and unfading and kept in heaven for you. 
You are being protected by God's power through faith for salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter reminds the Christians that they've got a, a wonderful inheritance. I don't know whether you've ever inherited anything. But the earthly inheritance is, you know, you might get a bit of money or you might even get a property. Or you might get a little trinket or something you don't really want. But, you know, it's nice to get something. But for the Israelites, for God's people, for the chosen people, that word inheritance in verse 4 had meaning. It meant a place and it meant God's presence. It meant a place because they were wandering in the wilderness. They were pilgrims in a barren land. They were exiles, but God had promised a great land, a land of milk and honey. But more than a place, it was God's presence. Listen to Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, Surely I have a delightful inheritance. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Do you know when I go back to the mother country, when I go back to England, what do I get excited about? There's places, I love, I love going to the places, like Oxford and my hometown. But the most exciting thing is seeing people that you love, being with people that you really love. And Peter's reminding the Christians that what we should get excited about is the place called heaven, a place of no suffering and no sickness and no prejudice and no pain and no terrorism and no selfishness and no intolerance and no superiority. That's a wonderful place, isn't it, called paradise? But we should be really excited about seeing God, seeing him face to face. I love the fact in verse... For Peter tells the Christians that their inheritance has been kept for them. See that end of verse 4? It's kept in heaven for you. God is protecting the place and protecting his presence. It's ready for us. And I can't think of a safer pair of hands for it to be kept in than God's hands, can you? You can be certain that, that God has kept your inheritance for you. No one's going to steal it from you. But you kind of miss it in the Holman. But let me just read verses 4 and 5 again. An inheritance that's imperishable and uncorrupted and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being kept also by God's power. See how nice that is? God keeps heaven for you. And then in verse 5, God keeps you for heaven. I don't know about you, but there are times where I just think, you know, Will I make it? <laughs> Will I actually get there? Now, what if I stumble? What if I fall? What if I fail? What if the opposition of this world is so much that I just give in? And verse 5 is a beautiful verse because it reminds me that it's not down to me, it's down to God. God will keep me and God will protect me and God will shield me by his power, verse 5. And if God's power can raise a dead man back to life like, Je like it did with Jesus, that same power can keep me for heaven, can't it? I want you to imagine that um, you're on a bus 
and you're doing the longest bus journey you possibly could in Australia. So you, you start in Perth and you go down the, the south coast all the way around, all the way up the east coast, you end up in Darwin. That's pretty long, isn't it? There'll be times on that bus journey where the, the scenery is beautiful and spectacular and you're having a wonderful time and there'll be times on that bus journey where you're just bored and it is dull and dull and boring. And there'll be times on that bus journey where you are zooming down smooth roads and highways and freeways. It's all plain sailings. There'll be time on that bus journey where it is bumpy and you're clinging on for dear life. But how do you know you're going to get to Darwin? You know because you got on the bus. Doesn't matter how, hard, how much you cling on. That's not going to get you there. The bus will get you there, not you. And that's what he's saying in verse 6, that, that faith is getting onto the bus. The moment you put your, your trust in Jesus, you're on the bus. And because you're on the bus, God will protect you and God will get you there. And you know, there's going to be times in your Christian life, in your Christian journey, as you head towards heaven, not towards Darwin, but towards heaven, where it will be wonderful and it will be exciting and the scenery is amazing. And there'll be times in your Christian journey where it's dull and boring. It doesn't matter. You're on the bus. That's what matters. And there'll be times where it's plain sailing and times where it's rocky and bumpy. And you'll think, will I ever get there? Look at verse 5 again. Yes, you will. Because you are being shielded or protected or kept by God. He's chosen you. He's going to keep you. Doesn't matter what the world throws at you or what people throw at you, be confident of this that you're being kept for heaven. Now, it used to be said that um, the church was so heavenly minded that we have no earthly good. I don't think we can say that today, can we? I think it's exactly the opposite, isn't it? The church is so earthly minded. We rarely think about heaven. Oh, we spend lots of time thinking about our property and our portfolios and our popularity, just like the rest of the world. But heaven's kind of off our radar. But you will live differently in this world if you realize that you're heading to a wonderful inheritance. So your identity matters, your inheritance matters, and lastly, your perspective matters. Because this living hope gives you a new perspective on life and trials and tragedy and yes, on suffering. Let me read verse 6. You rejoice in this, that is the living hope, the inheritance. You rejoice in the living hope. Though now, for a short time, for a little while, you've had to struggle in various trials or tragedies or sufferings. Uh, so that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, what, what Peter's saying there is that, that you will struggle. There'll be moments and times in life where you find yourself in the midst of a tragedy or a trial or some pain or some hardship or some suffering, because we're not exempt from those. Just because we're chosen by God, 
Just because we've got an inheritance, God does not exempt us from trials. In fact, God in his great wisdom and infinite wisdom, he allows us to struggle. So what do we do as chosen people in the midst of trials? What we don't do is this. We we don't put on the fake smile, we're shiny, happy people, life's wonderful. We do grieve, don't we? And we do cry. We do ask why. But in the midst of them, we are different. Christians suffer differently. Why? Because of verse 6. He says, though, for a short time you've had to struggle. I love that phrase, a short time. It reminds me that that trials have an expiration, expiration date. Because we're not time-bound creatures. We have eternity on our radar. And compared to eternity, however long you suffer here on earth, it is just a little while. Your your trials might last for a day or for a week or for a month or for your entire life. But compared to eternity, it's just a short time, isn't it? And I, I wish that God had defined how long that short time was, but he hasn't. And the second reason that we suffer differently is because of the purpose of these trials. Do you spot it in verse 7? The trials, the tragedies, the pain, the hardships come so that the genuineness of your faith, verse 7, more valuable than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying God's purpose in trials is to refine you and to prepare you for glory. Let me try and illustrate. Imagine that you walk into Tiffany's tomorrow morning. Let's say a jeweler's for anybody who doesn't know. Walk into Tiffany's and, and you say, just give me the most precious gold you've got here in the shop. And he comes out with you know, rings and bracelets and necklaces and you think, yep, I'll take all those. And you grab all that gold and then you, you grab a furnace. That is a fiery furnace. And you just chuck all the gold into it. And you're thinking, what are you doing? And as you watch this gold and it, it starts to melt, what you then spot is all the hidden yuck, all the muck, all the impurities within the gold. They actually rise to the surface. And you can skim off all the impurities and skim off all the muck and all the rubbish. And as that metal cools down again, you're left with a much, much, much purer gold. And if you grasp that illustration, you'll now understand one of the reasons why God takes you through trials and hardships. Because as he throws you into the furnace, we'd never choose it, would we? But as you're in the midst of the furnace, what God is doing in you is he's bringing all the, all the yuck to the surface. All the character flaws, all the, things that you, all the ways that you're not like Jesus, and he brings it to the surface so that you can scrape it off. And at the end of the trial, you've got a more Christ-like, more refined, more godly person ready for heaven. Oh, you'd never choose it. Trust me, you'd never choose it. 
But God in his kindness does that for us. I think of the man I know who has got lung cancer age 50. He would never choose that. But he stands here today and he say he, he would say he's a much better husband and a much better father and a much better Christian because God took him through that. And I think of the lady who was here this morning at 9.45 who went through a very, very painful divorce. And she would never have chosen that. But she said to me this morning, you know, she's closer to Jesus. Her prayer life is so much deeper. And her prizes have changed because of it. I think of the person who really is ostracized and marginalized for speaking up for Christ. And they would say, through that trials, it's reminded them, do they really believe this? Is this worth living for? And I can look at, I'm not going to name you, I can look at the people in this room today who I know are suffering and have suffered, and I know the way that God has refined you through it because your joy in Jesus just shines from you. You know the most joyful, satisfied, content Christians? Once you start to dig beneath the surface, they talk about the trials and they talk about the sufferings. As we speak tonight, my wife is in bed yet again. <laughs> More sufferings. But if you know Rach, you know, the way that God has built her character and her Christ-likeness, even through the hardest times, she'd never have chosen that. None of us would. But that's why God sometimes allows us to suffer. I want to say to you tonight, friends, this might sound a bizarre thing to say. Don't waste your trials. Don't waste your hardships. Don't waste your suffering. What I mean by that is that if God has thrown you into the furnace, if God has put you into the deep end, if God has uh, put you through the fire to reveal all the yuck and the muck to get rid of so you're more like Christ, please don't go through that trial and through that suffering and come out the other end and do nothing about it. Please don't, don't go through the suffering and not ask, God, what are you doing? How are you refining me? How are you making me more like Christ? Because I don't want to come out the other end the same person. Don't waste your trials. Ask God how he's refining you in the midst of the fiery furnace. Because trust me, when you do, God shows you how he's making you more joyful, more faithful, more satisfied. There you go. Live differently by your new identity, your new inheritance, and a new perspective. I want to finish tonight by asking a really, really simple question. It's a question that comes from verse 8. And the question is this Do you really love Jesus? I'm not asking if you know the facts about Jesus. I'm asking, do you love him? Uh, do, do you trust him? Do you believe in him? Do you say, you know, I, I'm only who I am today because of you, Jesus, and everything on earth is nothing compared to you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I want to be with you. I want to see you. See, Peter says in verse 8, you, you love him. You love Jesus. 
that you haven't seen him. We're not like Peter who lived with him and walked with him. We haven't seen Jesus yet. But we do love him. And though we don't see him now, today, on this earth, where we're temporary residents, we believe in him, we trust him. And because of that, we rejoice with an inexpressible and a glorious joy because we are receiving the goal of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. Though we have not seen him, our hearts know him well, don't they? Our hearts know him well. And one day we will see him face to face. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. I'm going to pray. But before I do that, I'm just going to give you space. Where you are to answer that question, do you really love Jesus? And if you do, you'll be here saying, gosh, I'm chosen. I've got an inheritance and a different perspective on suffering. So space and then I'll pray.